Welcome to OneGreatMoment.com, a podcast clearinghouse for everybody's greatest stories. We've all got a tale to tell, and someday we'd love to hear yours. See our website for how that works. But here and now, in this moment, we're off to Moment number five, an Alaskan welcome. A young family moves to Anchorage on the day of the really big one. Told by parents Jim and Pinky Richardson and daughter Katie. With music by Bob Long, the Gephardt Long Quartet, and Bit Rationale. Enjoy your listen. For five long minutes on the afternoon of March 27, 1964, my father believed the world had spun loose from its axis. March 27, 1964 started out very early in a gray, foggy Seattle. Two of our three girls got carsick on the way to the airport. We flew on into Anchorage on a constellation, stopping in Yakutat and Cordova. I remember a man looking like a mountain man getting on in Cordova, carrying his rifle in one hand. No wrapping or case. No one even questioned it. We arrived in Anchorage about 3.15, tired and hungry, and wanted to eat dinner. We crossed 4th Avenue and walked to the Hofbrau House, a restaurant and bar located where the post office mall is now. I had salmon for dinner, always a favorite of mine. We walked about two blocks after dinner when Jim went into the post office to pick up mail at General Delivery while we waited outside. He was too late. It was 5.35. As he rejoined us, I felt a wave of nausea and remember thinking, how dumb to eat seafood in a restaurant. I must have food poisoning. I grabbed at Jim, noting the odd way he looked at me. I thought I really must look green. Finally, it became obvious. The problem was not me, but the earth moving. As I reached the bottom of the stairs where the family was waiting, I felt an uneasy sensation. We continued walking along the sidewalk, which was now rising and falling in a gentle wave-like motion. As we proceeded, the sidewalk began heaving in a more violent manner. I recognized we were having an earthquake. I was concerned that the overhead wires would snap and that we would be electrocuted or that the sidewalk would crack open and someone would fall in. I told the kids and Pinky to sit down on the sidewalk so we wouldn't fall down, but Pinky didn't want to be near the building if it fell. After a short tug of war, we compromised on a spot halfway between the building and the wires. Our daughter Katie then didn't want to sit on the slushy snow because she might get her white knee socks dirty. She finally did sit, though. I was sitting on a sidewalk in Anchorage, Alaska, on this March day, having been uprooted from Oregon, the only home I'd known. We'd moved to Alaska this very day, had flown into the city only hours earlier, and were now sitting in the snow while the incomprehensible happened around us. For me, it was odd, no more, no less, a moving underwater, 
A slow-motion dream world that got stranger by the minute. The huge cement flagpole in front of the post office building whipped back and forth like the tip of a fly rod, while parked cars rocked rhythmically up off their wheels. One in particular, a slow-motion jackhammer smashing a parking meter to the ground. The cement slab side of a department store buckled out and snapped back, buckled out and snapped back, until huge sections broke off and hit the ground, leaving behind what looked like mattress stuffing and bent rebar. We had only been in Alaska for a couple of hours. How was I to know this was not normal? My mother reached for my father's arm, thinking she was dizzy with food poisoning. The look on his face, the confusion on ours, made her realize she was not alone. The motion of the earth accelerated and Jim warned us about falling light wires. I was more concerned about falling buildings. The huge blocks in the old federal building flexed like links in an expansion watch band. My father turned around to face my sisters and me. Sit down, he ordered. We looked at him as though he were crazy. We were dressed for travel in our matching red plaid wool pleated skirts, neat white knee socks pulled up tight. I looked at the slushy snow on the sidewalk and back at him. But I started knowing even at ten that wool had to be dry-cleaned and pleats were a special problem. There was a general, low rumbling sound as shock waves approached. We could see the street and sidewalk rise a foot or more as the waves passed, but the pavement didn't break open. A steel flagpole in front of the building was whipping back and forth like a fly rod. The sheet metal false front of a department store across the intersection would bend out about three feet when a shock wave hit, then would clatter back against the building, banging several times until the next tremor. The overhead wires were swinging wildly and slapping against the supports, but didn't break. Sit down, he repeated more forcefully this time. My older sister and I sat gingerly, while my younger sister tried one last protest. She was rebellious anyway, and this was the first day she'd been allowed to wear white knee socks rather than colored ones, with the understanding she was to keep them clean. The noise was unbelievable. The false front on Northern Commercial Company cracked away and snapped back repeatedly. Each loud snap followed by several smaller ones, as if on rubber bands. There was an underlying roar as loud as a freight train coming from the earth. Other buildings creaked and groaned as they cracked. Sit down, swore my father. He never swore, rarely showed anger. We sat in the slush, our skirts unsuccessfully shielding us from the cold and wetness, as confused by my father's anger as by the chaos around us. 
We watched as a poodle went berserk in one of the rocking cars, as a man sprinted full tilt past us, leaping over the chain guarding the post office lawn, sprinting when we could not even stand. I kept looking at my watch thinking the quake would be over soon, but then another shock would arrive. I had always thought earthquakes were short-lived phenomena with a large jar, then over. But as this one continued into three minutes, then four, I began to wonder if this was a worldwide event in which the earth was spinning off its axis. Jim wondered aloud if the earth could have slipped off its axis. I asked in all seriousness if that could happen. Neither of us knew. What else could he conclude as the ground shifted violently beneath us and buildings nearby began to fall to the sidewalk, not stopping after 30 seconds or one minute or two minutes or three or four? What else could he believe but that this primary law of geophysics was now inexplicably null and void? We edged our way to a wide spot on the sidewalk and sat down holding to each other. The girls, still dressed in their Sunday best, made sure I understood it was my fault, not theirs, when their clothes turned up dirty. At the same moment, while we were trying to prevent falls and broken arms, a little lady in her 60s or 70s took off down the street at a dead run from her pickup. After a while, it became clear the motion of the earth was not helter-skelter, but was from northeast to southwest, and one could ride with it. I think he was watching other things around us. She was fascinated by an orange pickup parked at the curb by us that was rocking from side to side with each wave. A terrified poodle inside was wondering what was happening to his world. With each tip of the truck, it banged into the parking meter. I didn't notice it at the time. But two weeks later, I revisited the site and found the three-inch meter post bent 45 degrees from vertical. Finally, after five minutes, the shaking subsided. We got up and walked back to our car. We didn't know that the Hofbrau house had collapsed and slid down the hill, that the airport control tower had fallen over, or that the front slab of pennies where we were headed had fallen off into a car, killing the occupant. It was only when the shaking was finally over that I learned that this had been an earthquake. Later, that it had registered 9.2 on the Richter scale, the most powerful earthquake ever recorded on the North American continent. It was only that night, inching home in a dark and powerless city, Wading by candlelight through tides of dented cans on the floor of the corner market, where we'd stopped for emergency food, that I realized the magnitude of what we'd been through. To me, the most frightening thing was anticipating what might happen if the wires broke, the sidewalk opened, or the building fell. Then as the earthquake wore on, the possibility that it might be the end of the world bothered me greatly. It was only in the weeks to follow 
running from the house to escape the countless aftershocks, touring downtown and finding that the restaurant where we'd eaten lunch was on a block that had sunk 20 feet, and that J.C. Penney, where we'd been headed, was the most badly damaged building in Anchorage, accounting for a number of deaths. Only in the weeks to follow, listening to the radio set day and night to the emergency broadcast channel as it aired hundreds of chilling messages. If anyone knows the whereabouts of Mrs. Irene Larson and her children, Roger and Adrian, of Valdez, please contact Mr. Philip Larson in care of the Fairbanks Red Cross. If anyone knows the whereabouts of days of these messages. It was only then that I felt the fear I'd been free of during the earthquake itself. Once home, we wrote quick notes to our families telling of our experience and mailed them at the corner grocery where we went to get a few things for our beer cupboards. The store had only candles for light. Aisles were knee-deep in canned goods and broken bottles. We got some juice and soda pop for liquids, canned fruit, and a canned ham. They took no cash, only checks. Ours was an out-of-state check, and it was for $19.23. Personally, the biggest effect of the earthquake was on my inner ear. When I would walk on one of the plywood sidewalks, I became so dizzy, I had to hold on to a building to steady myself. Pinky had a similar experience in Dawson, Yukon Territory the summer after the quake. The floor of an old museum began to bounce as people walked across it, and she had to rush outside to steady herself. In June of 1967, I was in another earthquake at our firefighting headquarters in Fairbanks. There were a number of people there from the lower 48 to assist in firefighting. When the earthquake started, the Alaskans were the first out the door, while the others were still wondering what was happening. It was 25 years later that I learned for the first time of my father's fear during those endless five minutes. How frightening it must have been for this man who had raised, loved, and protected his family to truly believe, for what else made sense, that the earth had spun free from its axis. I know now, as an adult with children, that first you cradle them, literally, in your arms, and as they grow, more from a distance. As an adult, I know that we have at least a vague understanding of what to do and how to protect our families in most disasters, even ones we don't expect to face. Earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, nuclear attack. But what to do when the Earth spins free, heading off clumsily out of its orbit, towards or away from the sun, into the darkness, the vastness of space, away from everything that's ever made sense? What do we do then? Thanks to the musicians on this piece, Bob Long, the Gephardt Long Quartet, 
and bit rationale via PodSafe Audio. Contact information for all of them is available at our website, onegreatmoment.com. Thanks for listening.